I don't know about y'all, but I could have sang a lot longer. That was good, wasn't it? Man, he is holy and worthy, and we are not, and that's what makes the gospel message so transformative, that he would even dabble with us is shocking, but he does, and I'm thankful. You thankful? Yeah, amen. You didn't sound thankful. we got a a few thankful people in here, right? Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 1. It's good to be with you this morning. John chapter 1. I want to start us off on this last Sunday before Christmas Eve and Christmas Day uh, with a little question about Christmas songs. How many of you grew up listening to Santa Comes to Town? Yeah, we got nearly 100% participation. It was written, you may and may not know, it was written in 1934 by two men, Fred Coots and Haven Gillespie. And when they introduced this new song to the world in 1934, it was an instant hit with orders of over 500,000 copies of sheet music. That's how they did it back in the day. And more than 30,000 records were sold in 24 hours. Since 1934, it's been recorded by over 200 artists. Many world-famous legends have recorded this song. Bing Crosby, The Temptations, and even The Jackson 5. It is a fun song for sure. And I'm not trying to be a Grinch. Although some of you, after this Sunday, won't ever sing this song again, right? That's not my intent, but I want to make a point. It is a worldly hymn with a worldly worldview that shouts a worldly gospel message. Think of the words. You better watch out. You better not cry. Y'all want me to sing? Better not pout, I'm telling you why. A little Elvis there, right? I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been good or bad. So be good for goodness sake. It is the world's theology, is it not? It teaches us from a young age about a fake person who is transcendent and eternal. He never gets older than his white gray beard look. He makes reindeer fly. He's omniscient and omnipresent. Heaven is the North Pole where Santa is surrounded by other supernatural, eternal beings called elves. He makes promises and threats, but he fails to keep his promises. He's a liar. Here's how I know. He says, if you're naughty, you won't get presents. And I was naughty, and I got presents. (laughs) And you were too. It's a work system of living just like every other religion. Now, we only have to sing this one time a year, 
But if the truth be known in all of us, what's so profound about the gospel of Jesus Christ is this fight against us embracing this work's message in our hearts as truth. But in 100% contrast, in John chapter 1, 1 through 18, known as the introductory or prologue of the book of John, he has been introducing to us another hymn, as John Stott called it, verses 1 through 18, an early Christian hymn that serves as an overture to the life of the incarnate word. We have been introduced to, in these last few weeks, the one that is eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, and one who makes and keeps perfectly every single promise. We have seen the last three weeks the eternal word, the eternal creator, and last week the true light, and this morning we'll see God made in the flesh. The one, as we'll see today, who is full of grace and truth, one who gives those who know him, the text says, think about this, grace upon grace, whose message to us is I am faithful even though you are faithless. It is this person and this message, it is the only person and only message that brings what we have represented in these four candles of love and hope and peace and joy, not just during Christmas, but 24-7, 365 days a year until he returns. John is telling the real Christmas story. Yes, it's absent of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the star, but it is a theological Christmas story about how God became flesh and what that means for mining your transformation into his image. Here's what we know. We know from experience, from Santa come to town theology, and we know from experience in our own lives that a faulty view of Jesus will affect every single thing about you and I. Here's how John MacArthur talked about John 14 or John 1, 14 through 18 this morning. He said, it's safe to say that every major cult and heresy has deviated from biblical revelation of who Jesus Christ is. When doing so, they have erred either about his deity or his humanity or the relationship between the two natures of Christ. Therefore, it is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as it is to believe and know Jesus. That's why our text is so crucial this morning. Let me start off and read our text. And the word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Mm. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So D.A. Carson calls the first few words of verse 14 the most concise statement of the incarnation in the New Testament. And here's what we know. Verse 14 connects with John 1.1. Look back at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in verse 1, our writer John, the Apostle John, makes it crystal clear that the Word Christ was fully who? God. And in verse 14, John makes it crystal clear that the Word, or Christ, was fully human. Those four words, the word became flesh, is Christianity defined. No incarnation, no Christianity. No incarnation, no what? Resurrection. That the word became flesh is the most important reality in all of human history, and it is a central truth for salvation because unless... God becomes a man and makes a perfect sacrifice for sinful men. No men will be saved. Think about it. An eternal being became something he never was before, while at the same time never ceases to be what he was before, which was God. It's mind-boggling. The only person ever who is 100% God and 100% human, like that's stunning in itself. And it's not comprehensible. Is that a word? Okay. Just check and make sure you're with me. Or at least it's not to me. Some at the time, during this time, and today... They would look at that, that God became a man, and they look at it as if it were demeaning or irreverent, and they simply did that. They couldn't comprehend it, so instead they denounced it, and they came up actually with one of Christianity's first heresies, docetism. Did I say that right? Say it again. Monty said it right, docetism. I knew it was the heresy, but I knew I, I actually practiced that last night, guys. And here's what it, that heresy said. That Christ did not have a real or a natural body during his life, but only an apparent one or a phantom one. And our writer John also wrote the book of 1 John, and he spoke to that specific heresy in 1 John 4. Here's what he said. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus came in the flesh is not from God. Paul put this pushback against this heresy of Jesus having a phantom body and not a real one like this in 1 Timothy 3. When he speaks of the mystery of godliness, he was manifested in the flesh. And again in Paul, 
says in Colossians 2.9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is crucial. In this bodily form of fully God and fully man, Jesus' human nature, we need to understand this, was subject to hunger and thirst and tiredness and temptation and physical death, yet without sin. I'll just say it bluntly. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe this about Jesus. It is that crucial. This truth distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. Take Mormonism, for example. Here's what Mormon's theology would say. Jesus is not equal to the Father. He's not co-eternal with the Father. He's not co-equal, as I said. And that Jesus, they believe, was actually born. He was firstborn. So he's simply sort of the elder brother of all of humanity. Now, the reality is that Satan himself hates this doctrine of God becoming man, of the incarnation, because it is this doctrine that sets his doom up for certainty. So he has attacked it with his cunning lies through liberal theology, through Mormons, through Jehovah Witnesses, Unitarians. No doubt he's not going to leave that one alone. Verse 14b gives us another phrase, and I just want you to know we could do a half a dozen sermons or more on verse 14 alone. Verse 14b says, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Literally, to write that out, it sounds like this, to tent with us, to pitch a tent with us, or to tabernacle with us. So it makes us ask the question, it made me ask the question, has God as the second person of the Trinity ever appeared on earth before the birth of Jesus? That's a trivial question. Trivial question with Bible you can play over Christmas. So if they get asked that, you can say your pastor taught you something, all right? Yes, he has in the Old Testament. These appearances are called Christophanies. And it is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament in pre-incarnate human form. And any time this happened, it was brief, it was momentary and fleeting. But this time, the, it's different. John tells us he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. He dwelt among us, not fleetingly, not temporarily, not a flashby, but for 33 years. And we know he tabernacles with his people, the church, inside of us forever. This phrase is used of the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God dwelt with his people in the wilderness. And in this, God wants us, or John, the writer, wants us, certainly God wants us to make some connections. Here's some connections for us. Just as the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt with his people and manifested his glory, so Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. 
Secondly, just as the tabernacle was at the center of Israel's camp, so Christ is to be at the center of his church and with his people. Just as sacrifices and worship were offered at the tabernacle, so Jesus is our complete and final sacrifice. And that glory that John speaks of really can be defined like this. Matter of fact, our entire series has been called Glory. And if you were to define in just a few words the glory of God, you would say it is the sum of all his attributes and perfection. Now, surely John has not forgotten what Matthew 17 records in one of those places, which is the transfiguration. Remember that? Where, where Peter and James and John saw the veiled glory briefly of Christ. But he's also referring, when he speaks of glory, referring to the miracles that he saw Jesus perform. Water in the wine. John 2.11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his what? Glory. Raising Lazarus from the dead, John 11.4, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. John 13.31, when John speaks of the cross or Jesus speaks of the cross, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, to tell about the glory of God without the cross is to portray, betray Christ with a kiss. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, as verse 14 continues. Really here, it speaks of this uniqueness of Jesus, or that Jesus has no equal among men. For you and I, it could be confusing because, yes, we become sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus, sons and daughters of God through Christ when we place our trust in him. But here, John is speaking of Jesus as the son of privilege, who possesses the full nature of the Father and the inheritance of the Father because the Father has given him all things to possess. In some ways, Jesus is the, both the eternal Son and the eternal Heir. John 5, we know, confirms this, where he says the Son has power over life and death and all judgment. God the Father has given that to God the Son. So we know how he is viewed. And then lastly, love this phrase in verse 14, full of truth and grace. John here, many commentators, matter of fact, the vast majority of them spoke about it as I studied, is probably referring back to Exodus 33 and 34. I think these would be two great chapters to read this week on your own. And if you remember, it is here where Moses asks God, can I see your glory? And God says, no, you can see a little bit of it. You can see only my back as I pass by. And then in Exodus 34, 7, as he passes by, God proclaims this truth about who he is. This is his glory. He says about himself in Exodus 34, 7. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives iniquity and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It is one of the first glances in a profound moment where we hear of God's grace and what? Truth. There it is. The God of the Old Testament is the same with the God of the New Testament. He is both full, not a little bit grace and a little bit truth, or some days he changes where it's all grace and no truth, or mostly truth and no grace. No, he is full of grace and truth, and here's why that's important. Because if he gave us all grace, what that says to us, it gives us a license to sin and do as we please. If he gives us all truth and no grace, then it's 100% condemning us. But he gives both of them to us in a perfect measure, at a perfect time, in a perfect way. And again, it is at the cross where grace and truth reach their apex, where the truth of God's perfect holiness that we sang about this morning and justice was satisfied in the death of the perfect substitute, the Word who became flesh. So the Word made flesh. That's where we lay most of our hay this morning. But there's also, obviously, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And in verse 15, John speaks of the Baptist's testimony. Let me reread that for us. It says, John, speaking of John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John, the apostle, reminds us and his readers of this guy named John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was the forerunner. Remember, he was the one who spoke about the coming Christ and of who Christ was. We also know John the Baptist was born before Jesus because if you, if you remember, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, got pregnant about six months before Mary. So obviously he was born before Jesus. But John the Baptist here says, Jesus ranks ahead of me or is greater than me. Why did he say that? Well, his response was because he was before me. So what is, what is John doing here? How can John be born before Jesus, but then John the Baptist say that Jesus was before him? Because John the Baptist is simply saying what John the Apostle is saying and what all of Scripture has said. And what we have said a few weeks ago is that Jesus was or existed before anything existed, that he's eternal. John is Doubling down on that. John, our writer, wants us to see that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist and all the other prophets. And here's why we know John or Jesus said that John the Baptist was greater than what? All the prophets. So if Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, there's no doubt that Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Let me take you back to 
golly, I think it was, came to Christ in October. And in June, I was heading to Colorado to Athletes in Action summer project, summer camp for Christian athletes from all over the country, college athletes. And as we got to the airport, I met one of my heroes, hero to me when I was growing up, listened to cassette tapes, even some records, and on the radio, a guy by the name of Jerry Clower. Anybody, raise your hand if you know who Jerry Clower is. Yeah. Ha, ha. Somebody shoot up here amongst us. One of us got to have some relief, right? You heard it. He said things like he was a comedian, a Christian comedian. You know a man is a redneck if his mom gets in a fight at a high school football game, right? You know he's a redneck if he calls sardines and spam hors d'oeuvres. I can relate to all of that. So as I saw him, I went over to him in the airport and sort of poked him on the arm, and I said, are, are, are you Jerry Clower? He's a huge man. He played offensive lineman, I think, at Mississippi State. And he turned around, and he said, ha, oh, ha, yes, I am, son. What's your name? And I said, my name's Jeff Patton. And he said, where are you heading to today, boy? I said, I'm going to Colorado, going to be with some Christian college athletes, and and, uh, and I, I'm a college athlete. And a man with him said, what sport do you play? And immediately I was about to answer, and Jerry interrupted me. He said, oh, he's a swimmer. <laughs> Sarcastically. He looked at his friend and said, what's wrong with you, boy? That man's a football player. He probably plays linebacker, don't you, son? I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I got his autograph. I feel emotional because I was so young spiritually. I didn't know anything. And he signed his name, Jerry Clower. And he wrote this verse, John 3.30 on it. And I remember getting on the plane and getting my Bible out and looking at it. And his tears ran down my face. When I read these words, he must become greater, I must become less. I remember sitting there for a long time thinking, I got a long ways to go. If I only knew then what I know now, I might have given up, <laughs> but I thought I could get there in the next few months. <laughs> Didn't really work out that way. I'm still trying to apply those few words to my life. John the Baptist knew, and John, a writer, wants us to know that he must become greater because he is greater. He is the greatest. And in light of that, the key to the Christian life is you and I becoming less it's the core of Christianity. And I want you to think about what a contrast it is, how upside down that message is from John 3.30 to the message you and I get every single day in the world we live in about what is the key to life. Because the world says you must become great. Thirdly, grace upon grace. 
verses 16 and 17. Let me read those again. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So in Christ, there is an infinite fullness, the very fullness of God. And when you and I, when we place our trust in Christ, we become not only children of God, as I mentioned, and heirs to every spiritual uh, blessing and the riches of heaven. So here is John is sort of confirming that. He's telling us that it is from Christ and Christ alone that all our spiritual wants and all our spiritual needs have been supplied. I want you to notice that John does include himself there. He uses the word we, we. He never got over this. And if you know anything about Monty Waldron and how he signs many of his emails and vast majority of letters or things he sent out, how does he sign them? Grace upon grace. And I remember when I first got here, me seeing that, I didn't know it came from this text. But man, what a phrase it is. Verse 16 where he says that our writer tells us it denotes a perpetual and rapid succession of blessings as though there were no interval between the arrival of one blessing and the receipt of the next. Folks, there's no doubt you and I get all the grace we need because John is telling us it is an inexhaustible source and supply. Grace upon grace. One guy I read described it this way. He said it's like an ocean wave upon an ocean wave. When you and I are at the ocean and the waves are lapping on each other, it's hard to distinguish when one wave ends and the other wave begins, is it not? It's a never-ending supply of grace. That is grace upon grace. Here's what John Calvin gave us three applications to that one phrase. Here's how he said it. He says, our needing grace upon grace shows us our deficiency to relieve our spiritual poverty and to satisfy our hunger and thirst. Secondly, he said, if we don't walk with Christ closely, it is in vain for us to seek a single drop of joy elsewhere. That is a profound statement for a culture, and many times the church culture, that is absolutely sold out and all in on amusement and entertainment and trivial matters. Thirdly, Calvin says this phrase application, we have no reason to fear lacking anything if we draw on Christ's fullness of grace upon grace he is truly an inexhaustible fountain. Now, some of you may say to me in your mind or heart, that's great, Jeff, but it's not working for me. I got lots of troubles going on, which I am not surprised by. So do I. And I'm not experiencing the grace upon grace that you speak of. Let me take you back to Paul. We know that Paul had lots of troubles going on, lots of persecution, lots of suffering. And most of the time, even though he prayed, they did not go away. In the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this suffering, here's what the Lord told Paul 
as Paul recorded it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. The Lord tells Paul, in the midst of all that you're in, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. It never stops. It never runs out. It never pauses. It keeps coming. Lean into the great grace of the living God for you in Christ. No matter your circumstances, for my power is perfected in weakness. And I want to say to us, when we lean into that, we need to lean into it for our own sin and how we make life miserable for others. That's hard to do, is it not? Because we, when we do sin, we think, and I'm, I'm, he's done with me. But also we must lean in it as others hurt us. It is sufficient. Stay, if you were in Oz, in the Wizard of Oz, we might put it this way, stay on the yellow brick road. <laughs> because the key to peace is not the absence of problems, but it is the presence of an all-sufficient God who gives grace upon grace. In verse 17, John now takes this idea of great grace, and he ties it to the law that Moses gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And in this verse, in some ways, John is drawing in or wooing in his Judas, uh, not Judas, <laughs> Judas, but Jewish audience. Here's why. The law is summarized, if you would, in the Ten Commandments, was the manifestation of God's grace to the Jews. And so John is telling his readers, if you thought that God's gift of the law, because no one else had a law, only the Israelites, through Moses was a great thing, and it was, Jesus Christ is an even greater gift. But also John, at the same time, is contrasting the inferiority of the law and the superiority of Jesus. He is contrasting, if you would, the Christian way with the Jewish way, which is certainly very common in the New Testament. Here's how Leon Morris puts this contrast. He says, by Moses was given the law, the moral law, full of high and holy demands and of stern threatenings and gets disobedience, but the law never healed the worshiper's conscience and at best were only shadows of good things to come in Christ. Morris continues, <clears throat> By Christ, on the other hand, came grace and truth, grace by the full manifestation of God's plan of salvation and truth by the incarnation of Christ himself to actually atone once and for all for the sin of those who trust him. Grace and truth. Here's how Augustine put it, which I like much better. And he says this, and this is in your notes. The law threatened, not helped. Commanded, not healed. Showed, not took away our feebleness. But it made ready for the physician who was to come with grace and truth. So the word made flesh, the Baptist testimony, the grace upon grace 
And then the face of God in Christ, verse 18, as we wrap up. No one has ever seen God, verse 18 says. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I love this verse. First, when John says no one has seen God, it sort of tells us again that this was probably the backdrop for John's thoughts was again Exodus 33 and 34 where Moses asked God to show him his glory and God told him no man could see God and live. Paul again says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that no man has seen God or can see God. So it's safe to say here that John is saying no one has seen the essence of God in unmitigated or unveiled glory. We know from the Old Testament those who got a slight glimpse of God, to them it was a terrifying experience. So this is some powerful revelation that John lays out for us here because he uses this phrase, he has made him known. He has made him known, which simply means he has been explained to us or he has been, here it is, exegeted for us. How many of you have heard the word exegeted? It's what pastors get drilled with. We are to exegete and get the meaning out of the text. John is saying that Jesus has been exegeted for us, or God has been exegeted for us through Christ. It's why in John 14, Philip asked Jesus a question. He said, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus' response is crystal. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Oh, whoever has seen me, God the Father has been revealed or explained or exegeted to them. So in Christ, we see God dwelling among men in human flesh. It's more than we could have hoped for or imagined. Certainly more than you and I can fully grasp or understand. And amen with that. But it is enough. Just this glimpse is enough to grab our hearts, to make us chase hard after him, to make us yield and lean into grace upon grace, to inspire us to worship. Christmas and Christianity go hand in hand. Why? Because it's about the incarnation of God himself in Christ. And I love here how J.I. Packer talks about it, how he summarizes the incarnation. He says this, The baby born at Bethlehem was God made man. The word has become flesh, a real human baby. He had not ceased to be God. He was no less God then than before, but he had begun to be man. He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. Think about this. He who made man was now learning what it felt like to be a man. So if the incarnation is true, and it is, 
As I thought about applications for us, obviously there's many as I went through the, the text this morning, but I thought big picture, the incarnation is similar in application to the resurrection. Here's how our writer in Hebrews gives it for our so what this morning. In light of the incarnation being true, the writer of Hebrews 1.1 says, Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Do not neglect such a great salvation. I want you to ask you this morning at the end of the year here if there are some habits in your life, some, some any way that you are neglecting Christ. Any way that you are neglecting such a great salvation. Maybe there are habits of not spending time with him. Maybe there's secrets. Maybe there's this drifting of a cold heart and feeling duty. Man, there's a lot in this text to make you pay attention, to be a smelling salt, if you would, to wake you up spiritually and not neglect such a great salvation. Make it very specific. Lord, if I don't do something about this, whatever this is, it's going to hurt me spiritually. I will not grow, and I will be neglecting the great salvation of Christ on your behalf. Take a minute and ask that question. of our need, Lord, we, uh, we sit in peace because of your sufficiency, your goodness, your kindness toward us. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. Grateful that you are so good, good Father. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.